Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf. It is November, which is depressing, and we have on the line... Uh, in Washington, D.C., both Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center and Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi, David. And in London, <laughs> England, I think, yes. uh, uh, where it's always November, we have... <laughs> That's exactly right, David. We have Corey Shockey. Um, uh, 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 so you're, you know, well ahead of us on all of this. By the way, did London do the t- time change that we did? Yes, we did it uh, about a week and a half ahead, and so there was a period of time where everything was kittywampus, which is one of those great American words that the British do not have a counterpart for, although they have many words that we do not. Ed, do you understand what she's saying? Say that word again, Corey. Kitty Wampus. Can you define means, that, Corey? Yes, it means all kind of crazy, um, uh, off kilter, uh, this way and that. Um, I like it. I, I like it too. And, you know, I always listen to these podcasts, um, not just to learn from you, but also to find a word or two that I can use as a headline. There we go. Kitty Wampus, you know, we're there and <laughs> you know, we, we don't even have a podcast, but I know it's going to head in a Kitty Wampus direction because <laughs> it's an old uh, political social science uh, uh, rule of the reversion to the Kitty Wampus. Am I correct? Yes. Um, you are. You are exactly <laughs> you right. You think that's David. some axiom? If you if you look hard enough, it's Kitty Wampatastic already. This podcast. Yeah, yeah, it is Kitty Wampatastic. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much. Uh, so listen, uh, you know, rather than getting, you know, sometimes we do this podcast and I'm like following on Twitter and it's like, oh, this court has ruled this and oh, we're invading here and oh my God, you know, there's this spy scandal. Um, and then, you know, in between there, I see the tweets of Corey to, to Rosa and Rosa to Corey going, boy, this is a boring podcast. Won't he change the subject? That kind of thing. I don't want to do that on this podcast. I want to take a slightly bigger, bigger view if we could. Um, and I was just talking to somebody who I think you would sort of qualify, qualifies as a kind of Washington, D.C. Mandarin type, you know, who's been in a lot of senior jobs and 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 we were talking about sort of the situation in D.C. And then he mentioned somebody who was an even older Washington, D.C. kind of Mandarin type and and said he was writing a book, this other guy, on on leadership and, you know, which people write on leadership periodically. And and the guy was you know going to look at the leadership of like, I don't know, Charles de Gaulle and, and some of these people. And I was thinking gee, that's really not going to be terribly relevant to anybody who's alive today. Um, why aren't they using any leaders from today? And then I thought, well, who would they use? I mean, you know, like, what are the, what are, what are the examples of, uh, of good leadership uh, from world leaders that we have? And, and so I thought I'd start there and take it from there. And Corey, let me just start with you. As you sort of look out and you look around at what's going on in the world, um, can you identify a world leader that if you were teaching a class or speaking to a large group of people, you'd say, 
Here is an example of what the leaders, uh, leadership for today and tomorrow looks like. Uh, no one leaps to mind, to be honest, David. Uh, if we if we bleed the positive normative uh, meaning out of good and just say, uh, you know, who's effectively playing their hand well? Um, even that one. Well, uh, I guess I would say Shinzo Abe, the prime minister of Japan, who has a very difficult hand to play economically and politically and is nonetheless keeping Japan, uh, although the economy is not growing, it's also not contracting, and that's no small speak, given the aging of the Japanese population. And he has managed uh, to handle the hegemon with which his country is allied delicately enough that U.S. troops are still in Japan and President Trump hasn't defaulted on our obligations. And yet uh, he hasn't provoked North Korea or China. So, so that's no, that's sort of sailing between Scylla and Charybdis, and he hasn't done it half badly. Uh, Vladimir Putin's played a weakening hand really aggressively, but I don't think well, because he is accruing up lo a long-term negative balance sheet. So good tactics in the near term, but he's, as Ed taught us uh, several months ago on this podcast, he has convinced everybody that he is the enemy of the West. And in the long term, that's terrible for Russia. Um, I defy anybody who thinks the Chinese government of Xi Jinping and the Communist Party are brilliant strategists to explain to me why they would have triggered the antibodies against China's continued rise now, if they're such geniuses. Even Angela Merkel, who sometimes gets uh, rolled out in this category, and I personally thought uh, tripled the cost of the Euro crisis, but managed to stay ahead of uh, markets without losing her population, uh, her population support there. Um, the French president, Macron, would like to return to the grandiosity of Charles de Gaulle, but um, it requires other, so he's trying to pull off the directorate of three, Britain, France, and the United States, um, speaking for you know, the leaders of the world, but he can't get either Britain or the United States to follow, much less all the European countries, to let France speak for him. And his latest gambit of, you know, again, it's de Gaulle, the, the unilateral relationship with Russia, unhindered by the policies of the rest of the West. Uh, I don't think that's going to work either. So I got to say, I'm really struggling to figure out who it would be. I might have given Justin Trudeau some sale uh, two years ago because I thought he was playing the inside game of going to cities and states in the U.S., uh, but his star has faded somewhat, too. So I, I can't come up with anybody, David. Well, I think that's, you know, that's the problem, and it's an interesting one in terms of the context of the era, uh, particularly since... There are, if you look back at most periods in history, there are some bad leaders. There's some bad people who are leading well, but they're 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 not leading in a good direction. But they tend to be offset by um, by good leaders, right? They tend to be offset by Hi. you know a couple of strong voices. You know, you have Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini, but you have Roosevelt and you have Churchill or something to that effect. But Ed, as you as you look at the world, do you see the same kind of uh, void. Um, yeah, I mean there are localized settings. Um, there are smaller countries which have fairly effective leaders. Um, you know who you can uh, who you can at least sort of give um, high marks for virtuosity in terms of understanding what they're going to do and they're not doing bad things um, and they're uh, uh, being being leaders and being followed rather than. Um, trying to figure out what their followers might want and then pretending that it was their idea. And so, what, what, I mean, one is um, Nicola Sturgeon, who's the leader of the Scottish Nationalist Party. Um, 
I think she's a fairly effective um, spokesperson for Scottish independence, but also for Britain remaining within Europe, which are sort of seemingly contradictory um, goals, but ones that she's able to sort of two balls she's able to keep in the air at the same time. Um, I, I, w- I would have said uh, Abi Ahmed, the, 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 the leader of Ethiopia, who got the Nobel Peace Prize um, the other day and, you know, who has played a great role in stabilizing Ethiopia and um, building peace between Eritrea and Ethiopia. But he's now accused of um, trying to assassinate a rival three weeks after winning the Peace Prize. So I might I might suppress that thought. My larger my larger sort of concern is not just about lack of good leaders. And I think um, um, I think Corey did a very good job of sort of giving us a global tour of why nobody really qualifies. Um, and she mentioned the 19th century. Um, well, you mentioned history, rather. Um, and if you think of the 19th century, there's probably only one leader from that extraordinary century of progress without, you know, without the kind of mass wars that pockmark the 20th century. There's probably only one leader in the 19th century who stood out, and that's Abraham Lincoln. Um, it was, it was, an extraordinary century um, in human history, mostly, I think, in a progressive direction. And yet there are no there are no real leaders who stand out from it because the systems were getting into place. Things were becoming less autocratic, more constitutional. Um, and um, generally, um, the life expectancy of humanity was beginning to advance. Um, and there's only really one leader from that century you can choose. So I, I'm concerned about the lack of leaders, but I'm more concerned about the system and systems going in the wrong direction today. And I, I think the latter is more important. We we have we have um, I think a draining of legitimacy um, that's going on in um, in liberal democracy and in constitutionalism um, that is bigger than you know any any lack of leader um of course you need you'll need leaders to check this and reverse it um to to reverse this um uh, kitty wampus that's that's going on in our political systems although i uh, google tells me that catty catty wampus is another word so it could be kitty wampus or catty wampus cory which is an interesting mr google was helpful on that point but um, oh no, <laughs> I'm I, sure it's some sort of regional Americana. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm delighted to have learned both words. Thank you. Um, uh, so I don't really have I don't really have a great answer to your question. I, I wish I did. So I, was, I guess in the, in that sense, maybe this kitty wampus, catty wampus thing is is the political equivalent of entropy. <laughs> Where sort of everything moves in that direction just naturally, and and we we have leaders and we have institutions that sort of you know change the direction. Now, of course, not all leaders have to be political leaders. Ed, you know, I mean, as you look at the 19th century, you may not have had many beyond Lincoln who 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 you know kept the peace, for example. But you know, there was Darwin, right? Um, sure. And and so you know there 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 have been you know other forces afoot. Um, still in this same vein, just as we're going around here, Rosa, um, you know, and we're sort of looking: is there somebody right now who appears to be a you know a good strong leader? Um, you know, Corey mentioned Macron and Trudeau, and um, and Ed mentioned small country leaders and. It's interesting because when I had this conversation with this Washington kind of guy at lunch uh, today, that's that's who came up, Macron, and then there was but this, 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 Trudeau, but this, 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 Shinzo Abe did not come up. But then there was some discussion about, well, you know, the leaders in like Estonia and Latvia and Scandinavia, they don't get a lot of press, but those countries seem to be working somewhat better uh, and 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 maybe our problem is who we focus on. And so, same question over to you, Rosa. Do you see anybody that that you think this the here this this person could 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 be the answer? Could take us in the right direction? It's a good question, and I I don't know the answer. And 
I, I, I had the same thought, too, which is I was going to say something like, well, gee, you know, the presence of Solomon Islands is doing a really good job of raising awareness of the fact that their islands are about to sink under the water. So there's that. Um, you know, all I could think of were examples of, of small states. And this actually gets me back to something that, that Ed was saying. Um, I, you know, I wonder whether part of what we are seeing here as a, as a, as a global phenomenon is problems of governance and scale um, that obviously, you know, the population of the globe is far, far larger than it has been at any other point in human history. You know, it's double what it was, uh, you know, a century ago, uh, maybe more than double. I don't know the exact uh, figures. I don't have them at my fingertips. And I know you get mad at me when I start Googling while I'm podcasting, David, so I'm not going to check. Um, but we will check soon. But 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 we now we, we have these political theories, and and this is something that the the framers of the American Constitution did grapple with. But I don't think they could have conceived of how large the United States itself has has become. You know, they grappled with the question of how do you have some kind of representative democracy uh, as the scale gets bigger and bigger, and 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 the governance problems get more and more complex. They set up a form of government that they thought was going to be successful at that. But, you know, maybe we have passed peak America when it comes to size. Um, and I wonder whether that isn't part of the problem elsewhere. I mean, I, I think there, and there are two aspects to this problem. One is simply the size of any given nation state, you know, unless you're the Solomon Islands or, or, or not to, you know, at a somewhat more, more uh, significant level, Estonia or your Sweden. Uh, you know, or your Costa Rica, in which case you have a small enough scale that it seems to remain possible for governments to deliver services in a relatively transparent and legitimate way that 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 sort of works at that scale. Um, but but if you once you get up to the hundreds of millions and more, um, maybe it's just too hard. Maybe we have no great leaders because it's not a possible problem. It's an impossible problem. The other, the other second dimension of this, obviously, is that uh, you know an enormous difference from a hundred years ago. Uh, it's not just the individual states' population, even global population, but the degree of interpenetration and interconnectedness globally as a result of technological changes, which in turn means that the ability of any one state even if it's on a smaller scale, to manage the challenges that affect it uh, is far more limited than it was 100 years ago. So maybe we've just reached the point where, uh, you know, we got too big for our britches and we can't as, a, as, a, as either a nation or indeed as a species, we, we can't quite figure this one out. I, I don't know. Well, you know, it raises Can another... Oh, sure. Can I Sorry. add one point to Rosa's excellent um, description, which is that it may not, this interpenetration point, I think is a really powerful one. And I'm not sure it is just the result of technology. It seems to me that it's also the result of the spreading of common values. A big part of the interpenetration is oh, yes. I think that's free right. societies. Um, shaming each other, reaching into each other's societies to foster awareness. Um, and, and that is what makes me hopeful that we can compensate for the failure of but, great political so, leaders. I, I think that's a great point, Corey, but it cuts both ways. In fact, I, I meant to, to say this earlier in response to what Ed's thinking. I mean, to, to, to further compound the problem, facing any national level leader at this point um, in this interconnected globalized world. Um, we, we live in an era in which we have, um, and this is, this is not a bad thing, obviously, this is a good thing. We have come to believe, and when I say we, I mean people around the, the globe, we have come to believe that the governed ought to give their consent and be participants in the governance project. We've come to believe that individuals do possess rights and those rights cannot be trampled upon by their state or by powerful individuals. We, I suspect that if you went back, you know, even a hundred years, certainly 200 years, certainly 500 years, and you start polling ordinary people around the globe, I mean, if, you, if you had the ability to do so, and said, you know, do you expect that your government's going to care about you? And deliver for you, people say, oh, are you kidding? No, I, I expect that I'm going to have to struggle to survive and that my government may be predatory. 
and I and I think that the that raising of expectations, um, uh, you know, the human rights revolution, the democratic revolution has 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 so raised expectations that unfortunately are beyond the ability of our current either national or global systems to deliver. So it, it it's a good thing and it's inspiring in all kinds of ways, but it also I think creates a, a deeper mismatch between expectations and what can get delivered, which in turn leads to a deeper sense of disappointment, anger, cynicism, et cetera, when, when we don't get what we're expecting. So, Ed, you know, a little earlier, you were talking about you, your concern is the uh, sort of lack of uh, energy or the breaking down of some institutions. And yet one of the things that I'm picking up out of what Corey and Rosa are talking about is that when your institutions work well, and when the systems and institutions work based on what we've learned so far, it, it may be that leaders aren't really the answer. They, they may be a little anachronistic, that they may not, they may not be as necessary, you know. It, uh, it, the, Sweden works pretty well. And, um, you know, I know they have problems with immigration and they have their own, you know, ethno-nationalists and so forth. But, you know, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, you know, Holland, these places work pretty well. Uh, and we may not know their leaders because they're small, but but we also may not know their leaders because if you have a good government and it's designed properly and it responds to the people, then things should work pretty well regardless of who's in charge because you're responding to the will of the people and not to the will of the leader. What do you, what do you think what do you think about that? Maybe they're just a little anachronistic and we're entering the post-leader world. I, I mean it's a very very complex question. Um you know the I saw Carl Bildt the former prime minister of Sweden and probably the best known living um Swedish leader. Um tweet the other day, and who's a very, very good guy, thoughtful guy, by the way, uh, tweeting the other day that, you know, whatever our problems in Sweden, you know, clearly we're not doing as badly as others. And he was uh, um, showcasing a survey of democracy, um, of the main Western democracies. And Sweden came top of a table. Are you satisfied with the way your democracy is working? And I think it was like maybe 60% of Swedes said yes. And... Um, the numbers for countries like America and um, and Britain and France and even Germany were considerably below 50 and in some cases below 40 and 30 percent. So it was it stood out. I mean, it's quite hard to compare small and until recently relatively homogenous countries with large multicultural sort of continent sized democracies like America. And it's perhaps unfair to make that comparison. Um, and it's always going to be harder to be um, to, to, to govern um, to govern the latter than it is the former. Um, but that, that doesn't mean to say that we can't take lessons from what it is some of those smaller um, democracies are doing right and apply them to the United States and other larger democracies. And one of the lessons, a really important one, which I think I've made before, is that people don't tend to blame globalization or even technology for their problems um, because the state assists them in transitioning from jobs they've lost to jobs they can go to. And it gives them healthcare and it gives them um, uh, security, economic security to shield them from, you know, a loss through no fault of their own, through the vicissitudes of um, economics and technology. And it, and, and it brings them to the other shore. It gives them the skills and the support to get to the other shore. And uh, that means there's much less tendency to scapegoat, uh, whether it's the world or foreigners in your midst, um, uh, but because you have, you've got less to complain about. Um, and, and therefore, populism is limited where you have a system like that. What makes this a complex question is that it's far easier if you're living in a smaller homogenous society to have the higher tax rates that enable you to do that because there is much less uh, mistrust. There's much more trust in the system and therefore there's much tolerance for higher taxes. There's much less suspicion that those taxes are being spent on people who don't deserve it or who 
or who aren't like you or who aren't um, contributors to the social contract. Um, and therefore, it gets around to where I began with as to why this is such a difficult question, um, uh, which, you know, is that this whole argument about um, uh, trust versus diversity. And it, it's a troubling fact of human society that the more diverse it is, the lower the trust there is in government. Um, and I don't know that anybody's yet found a solution to that problem. Um, uh, but, you know, becoming small and relatively homogenous is obviously not a solution for a country like the United States. Well, yes, that's 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 undoubtedly true, although the whole concept of democracy is is um, at least theoretically one of the best ways that one can take a diverse society and arrive at some kind of sense of of the whole, despite the differences within that society. And the United States, you know, despite all of our, our shortcomings, seems to be, a, you know, has, has been a fairly diverse society and represented divergent views from the outset um, and has done that with varying degrees of success. Let me go to the flip side of this question for the last uh, uh, 20 minutes we've got here. Uh, Rosa, I, 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 in another conversation with another sort of Washington uh, uh, observer uh, who has a, a unique perspective and 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 insight, um, the, the 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 way that conversation went was that the the, the person said, you know, I think we're on the verge of of tyranny in the United States. And this is not a, 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 a wingnut who was talking. It was not somebody who's prone to, you know, to uh, exaggeration or hyperbole. Um, but, you know, the, the kind of leadership that we're actually seeing here and around the world um, tends to be, uh, or the kind that's in its ascendancy is is, is fundamentally anti-democratic, uh, more authoritarian, more interested in concentrating power within an executive or within a small group of people. Now, you know, one possibility is that's a reaction to all this democracy that's been going on, which is giving too much power to too many people. Another possibility is that this just happens um, periodically. But I have to say, I was pretty shocked. I was, I was in a, you know, the, nice setting in Washington, D.C., and all of a sudden somebody was using a word that nobody has used with regard to, uh, you know, an American president uh, or, or a leader of, the, of, the, of, you know, that's been responsible for the U.S. in 240-odd years with, you know, the possible exception of John Wilkes Booth jumping onto the stage at Ford's Theater and saying, Sic Semper Tyrannis. Um, and so, you know, is 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 the lack of leadership that we see in the world somehow related to the ascendancy of bad and dangerous leaders? Yes, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, and there are psychologists who dedicate their lives to studying this, um, uh, that in, in times of uncertainty and instability, people very often look for, you know, the strong man, um, look for the author authoritarian figure who will say, it's all going to be all right. I've got it figured out. Don't you trouble your pretty little heads about these issues. Um, um, you hand me the reins, give up your rights, and in exchange, I will take care of you. Um, you know, I, I think that uncertain times make people vulnerable to uh, being seduced by that kind of uh, authoritarian edging towards totalitarian promises. Um, you know, and it, it even sort of goes back to these age-old debates about social and economic rights versus civil and political rights, um, which have played out in all kinds of, in different ways at different time periods uh, uh, from the, you know, the beginning of, of the 20th century to, to today. Um, when things are really desperate, you know, our, our 
do civil rights begin to seem like a luxury? And of course, the you know historically during the Cold War, the the communist states, you know, China, Russia, argued, "Hey, you Americans have things the wrong way around. You give everybody the freedom to sleep under their own bridge." But um, you know, and we get that that's nice. Um, but frankly. Uh, we're busy trying to feed people and that comes first. And of course, we Americans said, no, 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 you don't understand. You can't have a successful economy or a successful anything if you don't have, you know, a free market of ideas, et cetera. Um, and, and I think those, those we're, we're, we're continuing to see that kind of tension in some ways. And we've never really succeeded in, in reconciling that, you know, that, that thirst for, I don't care what you do just keep me safe, keep me from starving, you know, in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's all I care about right now. Um, democracy uh, and rights are a luxury versus versus the insistence that no, you, you, you can never achieve any kind of enduring security or prosperity if you don't also have uh, those kinds of political freedoms. Um, but I, I, I was wanted to say something more broadly about um, your conversation. It's, it's interesting. I, I um, on the one hand, as you know, I'm, I'm our resident crown of entropy bearer um, and apocalypse predictor. On the other hand, as you, as you also know, until quite recently, I was very reluctant to say we were in a, a constitutional crisis. Um, it is very striking to me how much in the last month, uh, uh, really since the whistleblowers uh, story went public and the, the, the incomplete transcript, it now turns out, of that Ukraine phone call went public and, and President Trump said he's not going to cooperate with the impeachment and so forth. It's really striking to me how much just in the, in the four weeks or five weeks or whatever it's been, um, people's awareness that we're kind of teetering in this country, certainly teetering on the edge of a precipice, has, has increased. I think a lot of people who really were, you know, very much in the it can't happen here, it can't happen here, um, have suddenly gone, oh, uh oh, uh, maybe it could. Um, and, you know, in, in, in my role as resident predictor of doom, um, I will say that it can absolutely happen here. And, and in fact, the single greatest predictor of, of it's happening here would be people continuing to insist that it can't happen here. You know, that, that the way you prevent slides into totalitarianism. Uh, is not by saying, oh, don't worry, don't be silly, that's not going to happen. It's by saying we need to be extremely attuned to these small moments and the success of small moments that, that get you there so that you don't wake up one day and it's, it's too late. And that's obviously a different conversation. But, but I do think we're, you know, the next year in this country is unbelievably important, right? We are now, uh, we are now a year and a day as we record this podcast, um, a year and a day before the 2020 presidential election. And I think both on the impeachment front, on the litigation, Supreme Court front, uh, on the electoral front, um, you know, this, this year could be the difference between moving, lurching painfully towards some sort of political and cultural and social recovery versus lurching right over that precipice. Two things. One, I think election day is November 3rd. So we're actually on the day of recording this we're a year well, less a less a day. Well, it's on a Tuesday. I'm working on days of the week. Two, yeah, I see. Tuesday, November third. Well, you're you're. Uh, it's also a leap year, so we're 365 oh, days. Oh God. 365 oh, God. Okay. days All away. Right. From Never mind. I hadn't factored in the leap year. <laughs> um, and I also wanted to step in on behalf of Corey before she did it to point out that it can't happen here is a, <laughs> a novel by Sinclair Lewis. Um, Thank you, David. I'm very impressed. And well, you, I don't know. I thought you might end up going there. Um, I, you know, I, I, as it happens, the other day I watched um, a movie. I don't know if any of you have seen this movie. It's a, it's a movie from the late '50s called A Face in the Crowd. Do you know? Do you know this movie? No, I don't know it. Um, well, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, I encourage you to, to, to watch it. It's, it stars of all people, Andy Griffith, who is a sort of corn pone, uh, singer huckster who gets identified by a couple of, uh, sort of slick producer types. Um, and, uh, before you know it, he's a political force in the United States. He, he rises through television to become an influential political force in the United States. And it's a little bit, 
you know, there are echoes of it can't happen here. There's also echoes of Donald Trump. And it's chilling. It's chilling that this movie was made in 1957, so um, 60 years before Donald Trump. And uh, of course, It Can't Happen Here was written in 1935, which is, you know, 80 some years before Donald Trump. Uh, people have been afraid of this for a long time. Um, and yet, here we are. The other thing I was going to say, and then, Corey, you can respond to what Rosa said or what Ed said, but the other thing that I was going to say is that um, uh, if I had said to you, Corey, to start, name for me 10 terrible leaders or 10 systems that are under duress right now um, and limit yourself to only ones that are really important, I bet you could have done that in 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it is much easier to compile that list. I agree, David. Um, and I very much agree with not only Rosa's analysis, but also her conclusion that the year 2020 is going to be enormously consequential for freedom and democracy in America and constitutional governance in America. This does feel like the most important election of my lifetime. And, and it looks to me uh, paralleling the McCarthy era, where in the McCarthy era, it was a member of Congress using the powers of his office and the institution uh, to terrorize uh, American society and to really cast a long shadow over democracy in America and in particular Republican members of Congress and a Republican president politically unwilling to move against that force, Joseph McCarthy obviously, for much too long a period of time. Um, but then he eventually discredited himself when famously an uh, Department of the Army lawyer shocks everybody's sensibilities into recalibrating what should be normal by saying at the end of the day, um, sir, have you no, what was the exact line? Somebody, David, you'll remember it. At the end of the day, sir, have you no? Decency. Decency. Thank you very much. Um, and and that moment By the way, I, I don't know if you I don't know if you fully appreciate this, but I am extremely good at Jeopardy. Extremely good. I, I have absolutely no doubt about that. Okay. Um, I just wanted that's to that's all so, yeah. thank you. Go on. <laughs> but the, the similarities feel very strong to me. And I think our challenge, those of us uh, who believe the president is a threat to constitutional governance in the United States, um, have to keep turning keys in the lock over the next year to try and provide that moment of, of breaking the spell that President Trump has cast over so many of our fellow Americans and drag us all back to a common sense of decency about coloring inside the lines of the American political and legal system. I don't know what that will be, but uh, I think all of us need to work really hard at it because Rose is exactly right. Um, constitutional governance hangs in the balance in the United States, and the only thing that is going to pull us back from the brink is the recognition by Americans and the political action by Americans to rein this president back in. So Ed, um, I'm gonna give you an opportunity here to make your shot for Rosa's thorny crown of entropy. Um, because you know, following her and listening to Corey and thinking about where we are right now, looking at polls that show 40 odd percent of the American people support Trump and all that he is doing that moves us in the direction that they were just warning about. Uh, and that, in fact, uh, although in uh, national polls, Trump has, you know, a lead over a generic Democrat of, of say, seven, uh, I mean, generic Democrat has a lead over Trump of about 7%. Um, the, the reality is that a chunk of that goes away when you take into consideration the Electoral College, 
A chunk of that goes away in close states when you take into consideration voter suppression. A chunk of that goes away uh, should there be the intervention of a foreign state uh, involved in this, uh, and uh, as we saw with Russia before. And then a chunk of that goes away, perhaps, because the president controls the bully pulpit and the, the challenger does not. And so it's, it's, it's all much, much closer, despite everything that's happened, than we may see. And, and, and I, you know, the people I'm talking to still sort of say, I, you know, Trump's got a better than even chance of winning. Uh, and it's not just Trump is a better than even chance of winning. It's that Trump is a better than even chance of winning. And what Rosa says and what Corey says is true, that this is a choice between not candidate A and candidate B, but democracy and tyranny. So what's your reaction to that? It is. I mean, it could happen here. Um, and, um, you know, I, I'm often surprised even today, even after all we know about Trump and about what you just summarized in terms of what could happen next year. I'm often surprised to come across people who um, continue to argue um, that it simply couldn't happen here. It, it just it's 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 highly educated people um often you know who've spent their careers in washington um who um are just used to um making assumptions about the way the world works and are just too set in their ways to consider such a horrific scenario as it is uh, as the one where it could happen here um um, but I do come across a lot of those people, maybe fewer, as Rosa pointed out earlier, than than five weeks ago. But there's still large numbers, and it's you know clearly it's a statement of faith. It's not a statement of empirically weighing up what the what the uh, what possible horizons um, um, are before us. And, and it's very easy to make the case for it could happen here. It might not. I fervently hope it doesn't, but it could if Trump's impeached and re-elected, um, particularly with another loss of the popular vote, and particularly with more assistance from his foreign friends, um, then his sense of impunity, um, you know, I think will be considerably larger than it has been in the first term, during which a lot of norms um, have been eroded. Um, and I think considerably more norms would be eroded in a Trump second term. And that would be it happening under our noses in real time. As it as it is to some degree, so I don't I don't think it's very hard to make the case um, that it could happen here. You know, I mean, I could start quoting Ozymandias and you know poems about um, you know tremble um, trembling um, at, at our power and and trying to remind um, people that nothing lasts forever unless you unless you keep working at it. Perhaps it'd be better to quote Benjamin Franklin, um, but. Um, you know, eternal vigilance is always needed. It's particularly needed now. And um, um, and the thing that most worries me is people who think like us, who share our values, don't really think anything anything that dramatic could happen. Um, and, and whilst they're complacent, I'm extremely worried. So you, I am Trump Mandius, King of Kings, look on my work, see mighty in despair. Uh, yeah, Jeopardy. For goodness sake, you already won the prize, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as we come to the end of this, the real question, Rosa, is whether you like uh, Lindsay Lohan's character in the end of Mean Girls, when she wins the homecoming crown, will break it into little pieces and toss them to different members of the crowd. And you have this crown of entropy. Will you break it into pieces and share it today? With Corey and with it, <laughs> I, I will. The, the crown of entropy is, is made to be shared, and everyone can have a thorn for their for their very own. Um, but but I actually I, that that the metaphor of breaking it into pieces. Uh, I just want to stay with that for one final thought, um, which is that we. It, it's funny. I don't think at previous moments in human history, just as we didn't humans were not accustomed to assume that their governments would, would take care of them or deliver for them. That similarly, um, I don't think there have been prior moments of human history where we have 
had this illusion that our forms of governance are somehow eternal. And I, I think the post-World War II uh, international system kind of froze into place an idea of statehood, an idea about the proper unit for governance um, that we somehow persuaded ourselves, you know, the, well, I mean, the most exaggerated form of this came with Fukuyama's The End of History after the, the Cold War ended, you know, we persuaded ourselves that this is it, you know, this is, this is, we've, we've got it. There's not going to be any further social and political evolution uh, from this point on. And when we talk about issues like, well, maybe societies have gotten too big to be, un maybe they're ungovernable, maybe America in particular is too big and is now ungovernable. Um, I don't think we should necessarily regard that with with fear. Um, you know, whoever said that this particular form of 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 a state and the government was going to be eternal, you know, if anything, while I think we 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 absolutely now I'm I'm not only am I giving away parts of the crown of entropy, I'm taking on a little tiny bit of Corey's uh, 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 tiara of optimism instead. You know, that, that yes. There, there are lots of things to be terrified about in the next few years. But on the other hand, you know, there are some liberating possibilities as well, one of which is that you know, we, we should be asking questions, not in a fearful way, like maybe the U.S. is too big. You know, maybe the solution is to make it several different countries. Uh, maybe there are totally different ways to think about political accountability in a digital globalized age. And and what we have here is a massive failure of, of, of imagination. Um, you know, so, so alongside our, our fear, which is completely appropriate, um, I think we ought to be giving ourselves some opportunity to say, um, this, like all terrifying moments, is also an opportunity to say, rather than just going, oh, my God, what if this fragile thing that we have is destroyed, to think to ourselves, you know, what if this fragile thing that we have is not actually the particular thing that is worth protecting? What if there's a different version that's worth protecting? And, and how do we, you know, what, what are those other things and how do we get to them in a way that is not in itself catastrophic? Those are really, really good questions, and I, I, I assume that at some point in the not-too-distant future we may uh, address them. Uh, they do make me think, and this is just my point of view, I'm not attributing it to anybody else here, um, that you know we make a big mistake by not asking those questions, and we make a bigger mistake by thinking that what has happened in the United States is associated with one person, Donald Trump, and not associated with longer term trends that have concentrated power in the hands of very, very few people and disenfranchised the vast majority of people and left them out of uh, the, the, the money economically uh, as well as socially and politically. And if the solution to the problem defines the problem as Trump and says, let's simply replace Trump, with somebody else who upholds the order that has produced that inequality and that disenfranchisement, then you're not actually solving the problem. And you have to find people and, and, and this rare thing within the American system, which is actually built into the Constitution, to reevaluate and ask the questions, questions like the ones that we've been talking about here, and saying, what if the answer for the next century is fairly different. And that requires not just integrity, it requires not just winning elections, it requires something in our leaders, to go back to the point that we began with, that we don't often assess, and that's creativity. Do they have the creativity to ask the questions and seek the answers which people have not been asking sufficiently in the prior period. That's one of the things that is going to determine whether we end up um, looking back on time as this period as being, um, you know, a bit of a cattywampus mess, uh, or whether it's truly the beginning of um, a tyranny and, and, a, and a dark period and the, and the end of something hopeful. Uh, well, happy Monday, everybody. Um, that's, that's, that's where we are, but I want to thank, uh, Rosa and, 
and Corey and Ed, one of the reasons that I, I really, really cherish these conversations each week is when we can get off of the news and get into your heads because you guys are brilliant and thoughtful. And it's really good to know that there are people out there considering these things seriously because that's the first step towards solutions. So thanks to all of you. Thanks to everybody for listening. And please join Thank us you, again. David. Part, yes. Thank Did, you, David. I was just, David, I was just thanking you fulsomely. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, you're welcome. <laughs> Fulsomely, you're welcome. Uh, uh, I would like to and, add my 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 um, kitty one pathetic. Thanks. Oh well, you were you were very <laughs> pathetic. And of course, we all must. And I, my admiration for David's Jeopardy abilities, uh, <laughs> Rosa's metaphor abilities, and Ed's ability to dream up permutations of words that he didn't even know. <laughs> Well, and we th I'll thank you for Kitty Catty Wampus. But, um, uh, you know, and, you know, it, there is this little thing here in, in, in each episode of Deep State Radio that I particularly like, and it comes from the combination of you guys. And I look back in the episode and I say, well, we had Ozymandias, which is Shelley, and then we had uh, Sinclair, and we had Andy Griffith, and we had Mean Girls. Um, you know, we, 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 we cover a lot of ground here. Um, can I, can I just make one, um, um, just remind you of one thing? Sure. Um, which is, uh, that, the what the fuck Brexit is still available at the end of every episode, if you want it. Yeah. And, 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 <laughs> yeah. What the fuck go ahead. Brexit? What? No, 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 not this, not this Brexit. episode. Brexit, uh, the, what the, the moment minute. has passed. Oh, come on, Ed, don't be that way. Nothing's yeah. happened in the last week. But another week, another yeah. week, there'll be lots of what-the-fuck Brexit updates to provide. Okay, well, next week we'll do a special five-minute what-the-fuck Brexit um, at, at, the, at, the very, uh, at the very end of the episode um, uh, uh, because I'm going to take you up on that, on that offer. Um, all right, everybody. Thank you very, very much. Tune in to the next Deep State Radio, uh, which won't be too long from now. Bye-bye.